0: Sunday mornings, we've been going through Luke's gospel. We're actually there in the final chapter. However, we're going to pick back up there next week. This morning, if you could turn with me to Psalm 37. We'll continue our study through Luke verse by verse uh, next week. This morning, I want to share some things the Lord's put on my heart from the 37th Psalm, if you'll turn your attention there with me. And if you do need a Bible, there are a few in the aisles. We'll be Happy to pass one over to you if you just acknowledge you need one to follow along this morning. Psalm 37, and I'm going to actually read verse 1 down through verse 8. And would you stand together with me out of respect for the scriptures as I read God's word for this morning's study? Psalm 37. David declares, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord, and do good. Dwell in the land, and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. And Father, we ask and pray by your Holy Spirit, that you would prepare us to be able to hear what your Spirit would want to say to this part of your church that's assembled. Lord, we thank you that you are with us and among us, and we want to continue now in an attitude of worshiping in spirit and truth by just asking humbly that your Holy Spirit would help us understand the truths of this part of your Word. That, Lord, you would bless your word as it goes forth this morning and speak to our hearts through your Spirit's ministry. And we thank you for these things expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I know it's not probably much of a revelation to realize that a great part of our life here on this earth involves dealing with problems and difficulties and challenges. And they come in various sorts. Various times and to various degrees. I think the important thing for us as God's people to reflect upon is when problems come, where do you turn to? Or who do you turn to? And when you face difficulties and challenges and the various ways in which they come into your life and the various ways in which they exist in this dark and rather deteriorating world, where do we go to resolve those things? How do we react to those things? How do we respond to those things? I tell you, I think that is really going to become increasingly more important for our lives, especially as we draw closer and closer in the latter days to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible clearly indicates to us in Second Timothy chapter 3 that in the last days, perilous times will come. Uh, and, and and it says, men will be lovers of themselves, and then you read through that list and it just describes the conditions upon the earth and it 's not even there that Paul, by the spirit of God, is pointing to you know cataclysmic events like you know earthquakes and famines and pestilences and some of the the things that we see happening circumstantially, but there the spirit of God causes Paul to zero in on the reality really, of the wickedness and the problem and the perilousness of men's hearts and the condition of human beings on the earth becoming so wicked and so vile that that will become something, he says, that will become a perilous time. The idea is literally difficult to deal with, times difficult to handle. And so how we respond to those things or how we react to those situations really is only going to become more important for all of for all of us and the reality is nothing new under the sun even as we read this psalm of David here in his day uh, David's life was full of difficulty this is a man who the Bible tells us earned the title of being a man after God's own heart David was a lover of the Lord he walked close with God and yet there was no absence of problems in his life there was he wasn't immune from difficulties and challenges both in his circumstances as well as in his own feelings and internal struggles and all the things that he went through. Uh, and here I think one of the things David brings to the forefront, he, he brings to the surface, as he's speaking really from a latter part of his life, looking back in hindsight, is he says, Look, the place to find the sufficiency for all that we need is in looking to the Lord. Is in trusting the Lord and committing ourselves to the Lord and and delighting ourselves in the Lord. Finding satisfaction in him and learning how to get to the place where we can just rest in the Lord rather than having to react in our flesh which is often the weakness and the mistake that we can all be guilty of. Now Psalm 37, if you're familiar with it, is, is really a wonderful psalm. In fact, I encourage you to just fall in love with this psalm, to read, to become familiar with all of it. We won't look at it all this morning, but we really don't know the setting of the psalm. A lot of David's psalms uh, we sometimes know the background of. We know what maybe the circumstances were in which he was writing uh, and and why he was saying the specific things that he was. We really don't know that in relation to this particular psalm we do know for certain because of what we find internally that David is writing this psalm in the latter years of his life in fact if you just draw your attention with me over to the 25th verse look what David says there in the midst of this psalm he says I have been young and now I am old now don't say amen because you'll indicate what stage of life you're in I've been young and now I am old David says yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread, because he is ever merciful in lens, and his descendants, David says, are blessed. So we can tell David is writing this at a stage of his life, toward the latter season of his life, and he's therefore, I want you to hear this, he's not just writing truths theologically. David's not just penning here things that he learned in a Bible Institute and therefore he's got some theological concepts now and he's learned a lot of intellectual things about God and about scriptures and theological matters. So he says, "Okay, let me put together a a fine sounding psalm here and and just say some things, uh, you know, theoretically and philosophically. No, David is saying these things from a point in his life where after he's been through some stuff, you know what I mean? He, he, he's journeyed for a while. He, he's lived out some things on this earth. And you and I all know that quite honestly, some of the greatest educators of this life is just the years that we live out the circumstances and challenges of the reality of what life's really like. Uh, And the longer that we live, the more we have a chance to see some things. And here, David is sharing from his heart's wisdom with great credibility, and he's testifying in this psalm to realities that he has experienced personally in his life. So you need to understand, this is an older man. He's been walking with God for some time. He's lived through some stuff. And he says, look, I'm not just saying these things. Because they sound spiritual, I'm saying these things because they're credible. I've lived them, I've learned them, I've experienced them. These things have defined themselves over time, and I think this is that's kind of the way life unfolds. It's just like a married couple, you know, when you they come forward and they stand there at the altar, and it's you know having the privilege to do weddings is, is a wonderful thing. But it's amazing how you know we go through these. Uh, vows and they say these things looking starry-eyed into one another's eyes and and, and they say you know, for better for worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health till death do us part and they're saying these powerful meaningful things they have absolutely no idea what any of that really means quite honestly they probably really don't even care about what it means the only thing they think is I will say whatever you want us to say let us get to the honeymoon you know get this thing over with and, and let's get out of here the truth of the matter is what happens as you begin to be married longer over the years, those very things, they start to define themselves over time. The longer you're married, the more you begin to realize what it means to say, for better and for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer and and for poor, and those things take on meaning, and they define themselves through the seasons of life. I think Psalm twenty three is another psalm like that. You know, we you, we just read it, we can almost spout it off. The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. Any, and but as you live and walk with the Lord longer, those things really begin to take on meaning, and that's the case of this psalm here. We know specifically David is writing from that perspective. I've been young, now I'm old. Yet he says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen God's kids. Begging and left helpless by the Lord. I've always seen God come to our aid and assist us. And David here is writing these things from an experiential standpoint with great credibility. Notice with me back in verse 1 how David begins this psalm. He simply says there, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Now it seems from verse 1 and 2, we kind of begin to get sort of the basic context of the psalm. As you read through the whole thing, and especially you see right out of the gate here, it seems to be an admonishment not to lose our perspective as God's child. That is to never start to think that God has forsaken us. We can all begin to feel that way. Again, many times we feel one way, but the way we feel is is, is not honestly reality a lot of times. And so we have to learn as a part of this spiritual journey in this Christian life that we don't live by faith. I mean, excuse me, we don't live by feelings. We live by faith. The just shall live by faith, not by feelings, because our, our thoughts can deceive us and our feelings can lie, and, and we all learn that. And David here says, look, we need to be careful that we never begin to think because of what we're going through or what we're seeing happening on the panorama of the world around us that God's forsaken us or that walking with God is just futile. And really, this thing of walking with that's it's just going to result in failure anyway, so why bother? And we can't allow ourselves nor to ever begin to think that God has just given evildoers or people who do perform wicked schemes, sort of an easy pass and that they're just going to have freedom and God's never going to deal with them and God's never going to judge them. And and David says, no, 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 we, we can't do that. Notice he begins by just saying there those first three words, do not fret. And you notice that phrase, do not fret, it actually appears three times just in the first eight verses here in verse one, again in verse seven and again in verse eight. The idea there is do not be anxious Or literally from the Hebrew, it could also indicate, do not be agitated. We might say, don't begin to worry, or don't get upset over, or don't allow yourself to become aggravated within. And why? Over what? Don't fret over what? Well, he tells us, verse 1, he says, because of evildoers and workers of iniquity, because of people who are propagating evil. Because of people who by their very works are doing crooked things and rotten things and deceitful things and dishonest things and hurtful things and ungodly things. And he says, because of evil doers, don't let yourself become filled with anxiety or get agitated. The idea is when you see evil prospering. And that's a challenge. Because as we watch our present world culture, have you ever noticed when you look around, it seems like evil and immorality is increasing... And it seems like what is godly, what is good, what is moral, like that's the thing that's continuing to decrease. What's unhealthy and what's ungodly and evil, seems like that's increasing, increasing, increasing. And the same token, it seems like that what's moral, what's good, what's wholesome and pure, that that is just diminishing all around us. And whatever ideas and efforts and people are wicked, by golly, it seems they're the ones that are flourishing a lot of times in our world. And by the same token, in contrast, you look around to those who seem to have ideas and efforts and people who are wholesome and godly, and it seems they're the one, many a times, that looks like that they're struggling or their purposes and their efforts are actually failing. And this can really cause a confusing paradox in, in our minds where we really begin to struggle and we begin to wrestle. And the key is really this. Should we be saddened by that reality? Yes. But listen, we cannot be stumbled by that reality. Should it sadden us? Yes, it should sadden us. When the days come where we call evil good and we call good evil and when it seems like that, you know, evildoers and workers of iniquity are getting away with things and and they're prospering and bringing their wicked schemes to pass and, and we wrestle with that, should we be saddened by it? Yeah, but we can't be stumbled by it. And how easy is it, if we're honest, begin to get stumbled by it and that's why david says here listen we cannot fret over such things the problem is is if we allow ourselves to start to fret and get agitated and anxious over such things we'll really begin to get off base in our attitudes towards the world who the bible tells us the whole world lays under the sway of the wicked one and we need to just remember that our world lays under the sway of the wicked one. They live the way they live and they operate the way they operate because the spiritual current behind their life is the devil. It's the God of this age himself. And if we don't allow our hearts to stay right before the Lord, we can begin to develop, I know I can, maybe <laughs> more spiritual than, than I I can begin to get resentment towards people in the world. And I can begin to get kind of just disgusted with people who are doing evil things. And I can find myself really starting to get agitated and start to almost despise evil people and ungodly things that are happening around me. And the danger of that is we then begin to lose the love and compassion that God wants us to have for those around us. Interesting, as I said earlier, that word fret, when you look at the word in the Hebrew, often we think of fret and what comes to our mind is just the idea of, of worrying and being anxious. That Hebrew term there that's used in the original language literally is, is to mean to heat up or make hot. It's a term to refer to kindling of fire. Now, it is translated on occasion throughout the, New Testament wor- or the Old Testament worry. But most often it's translated in the Old Testament, that term there, to become hot or angry. We might say... Don't let yourself get hot under the collar. And that's, that's really, it seems to be the primary idea here. When you look at evildoers and workers of iniquity who are prospering and bringing their wicked schemes to pass, the, the exhortation from the Lord is, look, be careful. Don't let yourself get all hot under the collar over people who are doing these kind of things. Don't allow... And and can you relate to that? Getting agitated, getting angry? Nonetheless, he says, look, do not fret. Don't get worked up. Though it seems what they're doing is unfair right now, don't get all anxious, don't get all angry and uptight and upset. He says, do not fret. Verse 1, he says as well, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Interesting. Nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. David understood in his honesty... The temptation that we can all have at times in life to look at sinners, to look at the ungodly around us, doing wrong things and living sinfully, indulging themselves selfishly, and to even sometimes begin to get a little jealous about it. To start to actually envy people who are living in sinful ways. And how as we look on our logical minds are challenged by observing people who don't live for God. And how at times we can seem to think, well, they just seem to be getting away with everything. And it seems like they're having so much fun. And I'll tell you, as believers, we can start to become jealous of the sinners and the ungodly people around us. I personally think that this is a real major struggle, specifically in a temptation for young people as they look at their peers around them and the school system and, and they see friends who don't know the Lord and they're not living for God and they're doing this and they're doing that and they're just uh, you know, living apart from... And, and, and there's a sense to begin to get jealous and envious of, oh, it's just so unfair. They seem to get to do all these things and these fun things and no boundaries and no limits and, and their heart begins to become envious and jealous of evildoers. And the Bible warns us of such a thing. Interesting, Proverbs 23, verse 17 and 18 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely, listen, here's the, the perspective, for surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. You know, what a great set of verses, Proverbs 23, verse 17 and 18. My uh, daughter in high school actually used those verses recently at her uh, Christian club at her school. she was asked to do a devotion. And as she prayed and, and thought through it, those are the verses that the Lord put on her heart to share with her fellow peers, with fellow teenagers in high school. And I think it's be, "Don't let your heart envy sinners." And, and that was the thing that was on her heart was to challenge her, her fellow students and, and fellow classmates who were walking with her. I said, "Look, we need to be careful." We can't start to get jealous of all the unchristian kids and therefore just, well, we'll just might as well live the way they live because somehow we're missing something. We're getting ripped off. They're getting to have all the fun, getting drunk and abusing their bodies, having sex with everybody and doing drugs. What a bummer. But the reality is, is the devil has a way to manipulate the minds of young people where they actually start to envy and feel jealous oh we're missing something we're getting robbed and I love what the, what the proverb says don't let your heart envy don't let your heart when your heart starts to the, perspective there is a hereafter my hope's not going to be cut off my hope is in the Lord and 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 Don't lose that hope. And if you're a young person this morning, let that be something as a word of the Lord for encouragement from you. Don't be envious of workers of iniquity because listen, the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. People will get paid for those kind of ungodly works and it's gonna be misery and regret and death to the good and wonderful things God could have brought in their life when they ultimately reap the wages of living apart from God but it's a very real challenge and so here the holy spirit don't fret and don't be envious don't let your heart envy your hope's not going to be cut off again notice it's a perspective thing verse 2 david says here from this older man again talking to those younger from perspective he gives wise reasoning verse 2 he says for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb so david says listen let me let me speak from a place of reason i have perspective that you don't have right now. He says, Let me speak from a place of perspective. And he says, The reality is, evildoers and workers of iniquity, he reveals the reality that sinful living is what? It's just so temporary, he says. It's short lived. It's just for a season. And he uses two agricultural metaphors here to compare to the lives of those who live this way. He says, First of all, he says, They're much, It's a life that's much like grass like grass he says those blades of grass they can sprout quickly the glory of grass is so temporary right you just if you're disciplined i wasn't but you usually mow it at least once or twice a week before it becomes a forest but again here its glory is so short lived it flourishes it sprouts and then it's just it's just mowed down it's cut down it's so temporary he says and their life also shall be like the green herb, notice which withers away. Again, green herbs, plants, they, they may look good in the spring, they may blossom, they may even last into the summer, but they never last till winter. It's just a short season. And then ultimately it just withers away. And that's just like the life of the ungodly, of the sinner, the worker of iniquity, he says, that's what their life is like. It's short lived. The results of it, the glory of it, it's so shallow, he says. It's just for a season. And so important that perspective is held. And the reason why is because God will deal with such people. God won't allow such to go undealt with. He says ultimately their life will be cut down. Ultimately God will cut them down. Or ultimately God says he will just let what they're doing wither up and they'll experience the fruit of their own ways. The point simply is that what we see among the ungodly we need to remember it's just for a season. The Bible tells us that sin is pleasurable for a season. The Bible tells us it is pleasurable for a season. But guess what? Seasons always change. As sure as anything else, seasons change. And sin may be pleasurable for a season, but it's only for a season and then guess what? It turns painful and problematic. And perilous with all the regrets and problems that it brings. Another translation of that says the momentary pleasures of sin. Again, the momentary pleasures. It's pleasurable momentarily, but that's all it lasts for is that instant moment, and then it's gone. And then once the devil pulls the hook into the mouth, and then a person has the regrets and the pain and the bondage and all those things, reality starts to come to bear. The enjoyment of sin is a short season. Job says this The triumphing of the wicked is short. The joy of the godless is momentary. Though his loftiness reaches to the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he perishes forever like his own refuge. And those who have seen him will say, Where is he? Again, I just challenge you do an experiment. Look at people that you know in this life that say no to Jesus that don't want to live according to the word of God, want to be the captain of their own fate, the master of their own soul, not be submitted to any authority over their life, and just live the way that they want to, hard and fast in this world, in self-indulgence and self-centeredness, I challenge you as an experiment, watch their life. And you watch what the end results of a life is like that. Or if you know someone that's been living that way for a long time, look at the fruit of that long term. Look at the end result of that. And my question is, should anybody envy that? Should anybody envy that? The key is... Perspective. David says that's what we must maintain, proper perspective. So he tells us what not to do. And then as we get from verses 3 to 8, David now encourages us with some counsel of what we should do. Verse 3, he says, don't do those things. Don't fret. Don't be envious. But verse 3, what should we do? He says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his Faithfulness. So David instructs us that we need to learn to rely upon the dependability of God. He begins with the basic need to just exercise faith. The one thing that we all have capacity to do. Trust, he says, the first main word. And it seems there are kind of four key words in this section of the psalm. Verse 3, trust. Verse 4, delight. Verse 5, commit. And verse 7, rest. Trust, delight, commit rest the first word he tells us to do is simply just to trust and that word means to lean or to depend on to put full confidence or reliance upon something so again we need to rely totally upon the Lord we need to put our full reliance upon the Lord and again please don't misinterpret David is not saying listen just be optimistic man Just be a positive thinker and and be hopeful. And if you have positive thoughts and you think positive things and you stay optimistic, everything will be okay. That will last about a half hour and you will be as depressed and discouraged as anybody under the sun. Dave is saying, no, we need to trust, key part, in the Lord. Because our confidence and our trust is only as good as the source of the object of what our trust is. So David says, trust, yes, but you need to trust in the Lord because he alone is the sole object of our firm reliance. That term Lord there, you notice the capital L-O-R-D. You see that throughout the Old Testament many times. And whenever you see that capital L-O-R-D, it's that Hebrew tetragrammaton where there are four consonants, the Y-H-V-H, no vowels there, and where we believe to get the name of God, which is Yahweh, or some translate, Jehovah. The interesting thing is God reveals himself in the scriptures using that Hebrew tetragrammaton, the Yahweh Jehovah in the Bible. God reveals himself throughout the scriptures many times using that name then in compound forms to further reveal more of who he really is. I think to show us more why our trust can fully and confidently rest upon him. For example, Genesis chapter 22, we get the phrase, again a compound term, Jehovah-Jireh, which is the Lord our provider. When we get to Exodus 15, you have Jehovah-Rapha, the Lord our healer. When we come to Judges 6, Jehovah-Shalom, the Lord our peace. Psalm 23, Jehovah-Ra, which is the Lord our shepherd. Exodus 17, Jehovah Nisi, the idea is the Lord our banner, the Lord our protector. Ezekiel 48, Jehovah Shema, the Lord ever present. The idea there, encompassed in the revelation of God in different forms, the compound term, is God is trying to say, Look, whatever you need, that's what I'll become. I'm the all becoming one. Do you need peace? I'll be your peace. Do you need protection? I'll be your protection. Do you need provision? I'll be your provision. Do you need the presence of someone in your life because you feel alone? I am the Lord ever-present. I'll be present with you and meet that need. Do you need, God says, healing in your life? I am the Lord, your healer. And whatever we need, the wonderful thing is the sufficiency of who God is is able to minister to and meet any need in our life. And it's a call for us to believe in who He is and what he promises so we need to rely david says and he learned this totally upon the lord by the same token the other side of that you could also say in in connection with that we need to rely very little upon men need to rely totally on the lord and we need to rely very little upon men and human beings in this life now i know for some of you that may almost sound a little harsh Almost cold or untrusting and don't rely on people. I mean, that kind of sounds anti-social and anti-relational. I'm not condoning never giving anybody a chance in life. That's not what I'm saying. Nor am I condoning that we should never give somebody a second chance. Where maybe they blow it and make mistakes. And later on, if we're patient and we're prudent that we, we rely on somebody later on. Again, Paul at one time had problems with, you know, John Mark in ministry and and, and they parted company. But later on, when John Mark got back on track, later on, Paul said, now he's useful again. And Paul brought him back to his side and used him again after a, a later season. So again, I'm not saying we shouldn't give people a chance or rely upon people or we should never open up and love and trust a person in a relationship or a friendship. But ultimately, hear me, our trust must always be beyond people. It must be beyond a person. Our reliance can't ultimately be in our spouse. Because guess what? Your spouse may fail. Your spouse may leave. Our reliance can't ultimately be upon our parents. Because guess what? Sometimes parents blow it. Our trust can't ultimately be in our employer or in our pastor. Or in our friend or some other Christian. Because the truth of the matter is... All those people have the capacity to fail. And on different occasions, they probably will because they're not God. They're weak, sinful human beings. So because of that, we have to be careful that even if they fail or they fall through, that we're not so totally dependent upon a person That then if they fail or fall through or they forsake us we then were so utterly dependent that we're left destroyed and were rendered unable to survive apart from their help or presence. You know, I love what it says in the Psalms one of my, honestly, verses that's become one of my favorites it simply says this the help of man is useless. I love that. That is fantastic. God put that in there. Tony, the help of man, it's useless. It's useless. And, and I, I have discovered that. You have seen that. How many we put our reliance upon somebody to come through, and they don't, or they don't fall through with their commitment or whatever. But the wonderful thing is this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that God is faithful. He's always reliable. People, truth of the matter is. At times, they're going to dissatisfy us. They're going to disappoint us. They're going to be disloyal to us. We have to be trusting in the Lord beyond people. Trust in the Lord. He's dependable. And if you trust in a person, trust in God's ability to be at work in that person's life. But don't ultimately put your trust in a person. Trust in the Lord, he says. We must rely upon his dependability because he'll never leave us or forsake us. So after we trust in the Lord, well, well then what? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin to put my trust and shift my trust to the Lord. I'm going to put my trust in the Lord as the Bible says. Well, then what? Well, verse 3 says, well, and then do good. Then just do good. Trust in the Lord and then do good. In other words, start doing and keep doing the right thing because that's what we're called to do as God's children, to just do what's good to do what's right to start doing it and to keep on doing it because that's what we are responsible before God for James chapter 4 verse uh, tells us verse 17 I believe it is therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him it is sin Again, the Bible says that not only are there sins of commission that we can commit sin, but sometimes there could be sins of omission. In other words, God says, look, here's what I hold you accountable for. You trust me and when you know the right thing to do, all I'm asking you is you just do the right thing. You know what's good. Maybe this person doesn't know what's good, but you know, God says. So if you know something good you ought to do and God says, and you don't do it because of your attitude or whatever, then God says, then that becomes sin on your part because you're responsible for doing what is good and doing what is right. And really, honestly, listen, that's what God will reward us for as well. The Bible gives us exhortations, 2 Timothy 3.13, Brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Galatians 6.9, let us not grow weary while doing good, for, listen, in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. It can be wearisome doing the good thing, doing the right thing. But the Bible exhorts us, look, let us not grow weary. Don't grow weary in it. Keep at it. Keep doing what is good, he says, for in due season. Wait on God's timing. In due season, he says, we shall reap if we don't lose heart. He says as well in verse 3, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. So trust in the Lord. Do what's right. And then he says, dwell there in the land and feed on God's faithfulness. Again, David's giving counsel to remain put. To remain put, he says, to rely on God to sustain you right there where you are in the land. He says, dwell. That word dwell means to settle down and to stay somewhere. You know, there's a place where you dwell and there's a place where you visit. God says, dwell The idea is indicating stay put, settle down, sink in roots, and sometimes if we're real, what happens? We face problems in life, we're dealing with pressures in life, and a lot of times problems and pressures that we face where God's placed us at times prompt us to want to flee our present position. And all of a sudden now it's not as easy as it was or we start to deal with some pressures or problems are happening and all of a sudden as a result of those pressures and problems we're ready to just flee and run from our post. And we just want to get away and and pick up and, and move on somehow. And maybe the Holy Spirit this morning is saying to you, listen, you need to dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Maybe the Holy Spirit is saying to you, listen, maybe you should just stay where you are. Maybe you should just remain at your post and trust God to provide what you need in His grace and provision to sustain you right where you're at. Maybe this morning you are experiencing difficulty or you're just disgusted over something at your job or, or maybe in, in your <clears throat> family or whatever and there, maybe there's things that are just difficult and you are about sick and tired of being sick and tired to the nth degree and the brook is drying up and your propensity and you are ready is just that's it I'm moving on I'm out of here I'm changing course I'm running away or you're ready to just react by rushing forward into something and maybe God is saying whoa is that how I want you to respond in faith? Maybe God's saying to you this morning in relation to what's going on in your life, trust in the Lord. Do the right thing. And dwell right there in the land and feed on my faithfulness. Feed on my faithfulness. Let that be what strengthens you. Again, the Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and of a sound mind. Self-control, the Bible says, is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. And this morning whatever your need may be maybe it's a financial need maybe it's a relational issue or a vocational again whatever it is David is saying to us listen I've learned something I've, I've been young I'm old now I've been through some things David traveled through some challenges we read his life we, he went through lots of different things and David says here's what I've learned sometimes God asks us to just settle in right where we're at and to just feed off of his faithfulness And why? I'll tell you why. I think David learned, and I can tell you as a testimony, as a child of God myself, that sometimes God tells us to stay put, to remain where we're at, to give him the opportunity to prove his ability to provide for us and to meet the need in our life himself. And to show us because you stood there and waited on me, you were able to see me do what I was able to do. And too often, many times, again, I'm not saying there's a time or a season to transition. Please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. But too often, I'm afraid that as God's people, rather than live by faith and learn to be committed and at times learn how to just be still before the Lord, we're too quick to just react And we become at times as Christians and it's a mark of immaturity like a bunch of infants in a nursery where all of a sudden I can't play with that toy so I'm out of here. If I can't play, I'm I'm, going to play by myself. And we act like that as God's children sometimes. And God help us, we need to grow up. The world is watching us. And I'll tell you, if we don't learn at times how to settle down and feed on the faithfulness of God too often we're going to make the mistake of running around and trying to solve things through the efforts of our flesh and through our endeavors to try and work out our own problems. And David says, you know, just trust the Lord, he says. Dwell on the land, feed on his faithfulness. Verse 4, he says, and delight yourself also in the Lord. And he shall give you, notice, the desires of your heart. So David speaks here of how we can find enjoyment and find our satisfaction in the Lord himself. That word delight he uses there, delight yourself in the Lord, the Hebrew communicates the idea of luxury, to live at ease. Now, I don't think David had any intention of meaning that we have to expect life to always be easy and therefore life circumstantially is always going to be comfortable. I think what David is indicating here is that we can experience ease and a luxurious comfort internally as we learn how to find satisfaction and fulfillment in the lord he's simply telling us very very point blankly he's saying look enjoy the lord learn how to enjoy the lord how to just delight yourself in the lord and you don't need all the things that the world's always you need this trinket and that and and and, and the world's got us chasing everything being so it's We have a wellspring, a luxury as God's people that the world knows nothing about. That We have the luxury of being able to find enjoyment in God and find satisfaction and fulfillment in a relationship with Jesus. And he says, so learn how to delight yourself in the Lord, he says, to to find your fulfillment there. That's the ultimate source of satisfaction. And if we find our fulfillment in the Lord and we're delighting ourselves in the Lord, guess what happens? you learn contentment. And then it becomes amazing how when a person becomes just content with the Lord and they're delighting themselves in the Lord, it's amazing what you can live without. How all of a sudden, you're not quite as needy as you once were. And you can do without because, you know what, I just, I'm, I'm satisfied in the Lord. I'm just delighting myself in the Lord. And the pleasures that God brings, Psalm 36 says, They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them to drink from the river of your pleasures. So he says, enjoy the Lord. Learn how to find fulfillment and satisfaction in Him. And notice he attaches to that, and as a result, He shall give you the desires of your heart. The idea being here, when the person of God becomes your delight then the purposes of God become your actual desires. That's the idea here. Not, well, then whatever you want, God will just give it to you. So you can rub the magic genie and I'm going to confess, God, I want this and I want a Mercedes. And I want, that's not the idea. God will just give you whatever you want. I don't want God to give me what I want. A couple times I've asked and begged for God to give me what I want and it was rotten afterwards. I want what God wants for me because he's a good father and he knows what's best for me. And the idea here is that when God actually becomes your delight and the person of God is your delight, the purposes of God then actually begin to become your and my desires within. Where what happens? God begins to write his will, the Bible says, on the fleshly tablets of our heart. Psalm 40 says, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is in my heart. Interesting, they asked Augustine, a great theologian of old, on one occasion... Sir, how do we know God's will most clearly? And those who asked were expecting this really deep theological answer. You know, he's just going to give a complete exposition for a good amount. of. They were expecting this really deep theological, philosophical, just how do we know God's will? And here's what he said. Love God with all your heart and then do whatever you want. Love God with all your heart and then do whatever you want. Because see, the truth of the matter is, when you love God with all your heart and you're enjoying God, guess what happens? God's desires become your desires. And all of a sudden, out of love, you want to do what's pleasing to God. Sadly, many times we pass up and miss this opportunity because we're pursuing satisfaction in other things. And we end up never fulfilled in discontent. Where when we focus on enjoying the Lord in a relationship, this becomes the key to understanding God's will for us. Because as we delight ourselves in the Lord, it says, then he will give you the desires of your heart. The idea is that as you're enjoying God in a relationship, God will regulate your desires within. He'll start to put his desires into your heart to replace your human desires. It tells us in Philippians chapter two, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So see, God puts his desires in your heart because you're just loving him And walking closely with him. And then he deposits his desires in your heart. And that's why Augustine said, just love God with all your heart and then do whatever you want. Why? Because it's probably God that's putting those desires in your heart if you're just in love with them and want what he wants. And God impresses upon the tablet of your heart those things and therefore he can honor those things and grant those things And, and he can give you the desires in your heart because they're his desires that he has placed within your heart and you can trust that and experience them. Well, verse 5, he says, And commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. That word commit there, the Hebrew literally means to roll over or to roll onto. The idea he's saying here is when we maybe we're carrying something, it's too heavy for us. And somebody else comes alongside and they say, hey, look, you seem kind of, can I give you a hand? Can I carry that? And you take the burden that's become too heavy and exhausting for you and you transfer it onto someone else. And what he's telling us here is at times when we realize things in our life are too heavy for us, we need to be able, when we can't bear up, to learn how to commit things over to the Lord. He's saying there's a loving father who's saying, hey, I want to relieve you. Take what's on your shoulders and and roll it over onto mine. Let me carry that burden for you. He says, commit your way. The idea is your path, your present course of life. Commit your way to the Lord. The decisions, your concerns, your issues, the requirements that are on top of you. All the burdens and challenges, the responsibilities and the needs. He's saying, listen, just roll that onto God's shoulders. Learn how to commit that over to the Lord to let him take over those things. He says, commit your way to the Lord and trust him. And, and, and he says, there's going to be a time and there is in all of our lives. Listen, and we need to remember this. There comes a time when you have truly done your best that you need to just commit the rest to God and leave the results up to him. That's all God's saying. Listen, you just do your best and then you just commit the rest to the Lord. And you just leave the results with him. And you let him, it says here, notice, bring it to pass. The idea is let him accomplish it. Let him fulfill. Let him make it happen. And perhaps again the Holy Spirit is encouraging and and seeking to remind you this morning that there's a loving father that's saying, Listen, let me take care of that for you. Commit it to me. Just commit your way to me, your present course, the path that you're on. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, The Lord who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And what a wonderful thing to know that we have a loving Father who says, You know what, I know that's too heavy for you. And I know the responsibilities are too great for you. But he says, all I'm asking, stop trying to bear it all yourself. Commit it to me. Turn it over to me. Commit your way to the Lord, David says. Trust also in him and watch how he shall bring it to pass. Interesting it seems for this situation that there was an issue of maybe what was happening that was unjust. He says, and he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And sometimes that's an area where, again, maybe there's a problematic situation. Maybe there's something happening where... You know, there's something unjust taking place and we want to get in the ring and try and... And God says, no, no, no. Let me, let me bring about the right solution. You just commit it to me. Let it go. And let me bring it to pass on your behalf and I'll honor that. Well, lastly, he tells us verse 7 and 8, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him, again, those who prospers in his way, the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Again, he says, do not fret. It only causes harm. Again, the the last exhortation of counsel here for the believers, David says, by faith, we need to learn how to be still rather than trying to wrestle and struggle against things in this life. He says, rest in the Lord so important because quite often in life if you're anything like me I want to wrestle for the Lord and I will at times if I'm not careful through my own energy and effort try and make things work out and we're convinced aren't we? we're amazing creatures we're convinced that if we just work at it hard enough or, or we just wrestle hard enough enough effort and energy we're going to bring this into submission we're going to get this situation under control. Enough effort, enough energy, enough enthusiasm. We are going to... Just, and, and we weary ourselves physically and emotionally and spiritually trying to wrestle things into submission. And there's a God who loves us that desires to work for us if we just relax and release and let go and just rest in the Lord. There's another translation that indicates here to be still before the Lord. The idea is we need at times to retreat in faith. Sometimes the spirit of God is just saying to us, "Relax, calm down. Rest. Rest in the Lord whom you're trusting, who can bring it to pass." And what does it take for a person to rest physically? You got to be still. You got to relax. You got to be silent. Isaiah 26 tells us he shall keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed upon thee. That when we just rest and we relax and we turn it over to the Lord, he says rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Spurgeon says God is not concerned so much with time, neither should you be. And how often at times in our life when things are happening, this is something the Spirit of God is trying to bring to bear on our conscience to remind us, especially again in stressful times. This is interesting at the end of verse 7 and 8 there. You see David seeming to indicate how when at times we are in stressful, difficult hours, we're more prone to kind of slip up and to begin to really get our hands involved, striking out. He says, look, be careful. Don't fret because somebody's prospering in their way, bringing their wicked schemes to pass. He says, cease. the Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Let go of it, he says. "It only harming you. And, and David, again, I know he's speaking from a place of personal experience because when you look at the life of David, what was David? In the Bible, David is a very passionate man. Very passionate. He was passionate about God, and you see the way he expresses it. And David was just a passionate personality who felt very strongly about things. And he was a man of great passion in the way he responded to things. And I think David had learned this experientially. At times, David had learned to temper his passion, and at times to just relinquish and say, you know what, I, I, I'm just going to retreat into faith here, and Lord, I, I'm just going to put this into your hands. I'm just going to trust you, Lord. I'm just going to commit my way to you and I'm just going to watch for you to bring it to pass. Lord, I'm just going to delight myself in you and trust you in your way and time to give me the desires of my heart. Lord, I'm just going to rest. Rest in the Lord. You know, interesting, the first time the word rest appears in the New Testament, it's on the lips of Jesus when he says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest, And you know what this morning, perhaps the Spirit of God is saying to you in the midst of whatever you're going through, listen. Stop reacting. Stop trying to wrestle it out on your own. Just trust. Trust the Lord. And just enjoy God. Just learn how to find fulfillment and enjoyment in God. And and just commit it all to Him. Commit your way over to Him. Trust Him to bring it to pass. And then just rest in the Lord. Come to Jesus. Let Him give you the rest that He desires for you. And I tell you, that rest is only found in Him. And it's not a physical rest. He says in that verse, rest for your soul. For your soul. Why don't we stand? Let's pray together.